0: The healthcare problem here it's it's, it's a many headed hydra, you know, and you can keep cutting the heads off. You can keep cutting off the heads of like, you know, surprise billing or, you know, like you say, like drug costs or, you know, tweaking with the ACA you know, subsidies or whatever and it's like sure, that you know, then you've got you've got fewer heads, but you've still got a fucking hydra. You know, like you <laughs> <laughs>
1: Welcome to the second annual Medicare for All week. Today's guest is Libby Watson, who is a writer and journalist formerly of the New Republic and Splinter. Libby now helms an independent newsletter about American healthcare called Sick Note. Highly recommend that you subscribe to Sick Note, which can be found at www.sicknote.co. Thank you for joining us today, Libby. It's so nice to have you back on the panel. And congratulations on launching SickNote. It's been fantastic so far, and I can't wait to see what comes of it. Thank you. That's so nice to hear. Um, It's been very fun
0: and uh, very different to just kind of be able to write about everything to do with healthcare that interests me, regardless of whether or not anyone else thinks it's interesting (laughs) so far. Um, That seems to be working out, but... uh, you know, I've, uh, I, I'm not one of the people who left their job because they didn't like being edited. Um, <laughs> you know, I do I do miss having an editor around to tell me, like, hey, maybe no one cares about this thing that you think is really important. But, you know, we'll see. We'll
1: see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you're not making the crypto-fash pivot to argue why, you know, healthcare is an uh, impediment to cancel culture or something. No, right?
0: although, you know, the option remains if I ever really need cash
1: quick. Um, <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) um actually for people who might not be familiar with your work do you think you could tell us a little bit about um how you came to be doing this independent newsletter yeah sure uh so you know i my last job was at
0: the new republic and technically i was hired to write about politics but um i kept kind of just shoehorning healthcare in there instead because (laughs) i liked it i think i noticed actually that um the soapbox which is the new republic's health um politics vertical had a healthcare tag and I think that was literally just because I kept writing about healthcare on the (laughs) politics vertical which you know you can make an argument for it certainly um but uh yeah and so uh, I started this Substack in uh I launched it in December um and just started doing it full-time in January uh and you know the premise is just um you know it mostly interviews with I always like to say it's interviews with people about stuff, which is like very vague on purpose because, uh, I think healthcare touches on pretty much, you know, every aspect of human social life. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, I'm not, I'm not linking it just to what we think of as healthcare topics. It's not just health insurance or, you know, drug coverage or whatever, you know, I'm trying to talk to people who's whose jobs make them sick for example or um who are working jobs because they are sick or um you know i i ran uh, an interview in january with a woman who um housing, her, her DC public housing was uh, was making her sick um, and things like that. So uh, the, the name is Sick Note because it's uh, it's a, <laughs> a newsletter about sickness um, just as much as it is about the healthcare system.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's such an important point because so much of coverage of healthcare is kind of like acute where you, you talk about sort of the single bad actor, the one hospital who's overcharging or suing patients or, you know, this one insurance that's particularly austere, but it ignores like so many of the other aspects of like just the conception of, of health and how that's tied into a consumer framing and how that then affects every aspect of your life. Um, I think what sicknote really does well is not in an explicit way, but in an implicit way, you really debunk the myth of the quote-unquote educated healthcare consumer making smart healthcare choices <laughs> Um, I think that's a really important task in the broader fight for health justice, but also in the more um, short term fight for Medicare for all, because this idea of choice and the American right to choice is such a big ideological hurdle to try and push back against in advocating for these types of policies. Yeah, definitely. Um, And, you know,
0: that's a really good point, I think, about healthcare coverage kind of focusing on individual hospitals or insurance companies or whatever, which, you know, from a reporter's point of view, for most outlets totally makes sense. You know, like you hear about a big bill at a hospital or whatever, it makes sense to be like, hey, this hospital overcharged this patient for this procedure or or whatever. And, you know, as a reporter, a lot of the time, that's kind of the only thing you can do. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you're kind of limited in how you frame it. Um, And one of the good things about having my own publication and like, you know, my own thing is that, I can link it to the broader fight for health justice, as you say, uh, in a way, you know, uh, I did a story about um, the the, the New York Times in January wrote about this uh, hospital chain in New York that had been suing patients for their unpaid medical bills uh even during the pandemic and um someone in my someone in my twitter mentions was like hey i wonder how much they spend on lobbying so i was like that's a good idea um and so you know i spent two days like kind of going insane trying to add up all of these like new york state lobbying filings that didn't make any sense (laughs) and that were clearly under reporting how much was really being spent on lobbying but anyway um you know i was kind of able to be like hey you know introducing this in introducing the topic i was able to say like you know all of these numbers are made up like the numbers like the the bills that they charge hmm. these people there's no requirement that the prices quote unquote that they set for these procedures and services are real in any way that they are (laughs) tied to reality in any sense um and so it's great to have that freedom to be like okay here's a specific hospital that did this thing and then set it in a broader context of like by the way all of this shit is made up um and also by the way this is how much they spend on lobbying and how many (laughs) you know like how many ct scams or, or whatever they could have forgiven um with that money that they spent on lobbying yeah
1: I loved actually from that piece. uh, There was a line that I'll quote really quick. Uh, One hospital in Wisconsin, or you wrote, one hospital in Wisconsin tried to figure out how much a knee surgery should cost and came up with $10,000. They had been charging $50,000. Yeah. That story has stuck in my brain ever since I
0: read it in 2018 or whatever. And, you know, (laughs) I will say that like a lot of the, I kind of go back to the same little data points like that over and over again. That the, the next line in that piece or, you know, in that same paragraph was about how the Cleveland Clinic in some regulatory filing, I think they were objecting to the price transparency rules um, a couple of years ago. They claimed that they have like 210 million different prices um, because they have 70,000 different sort of lines on the charge master um, <laughs> oh, for 3,000 different plans. Um, and that is like, that to me is one of the most like illustrative data points that exists and it was just something that they said <laughs> like they said that, they told <laughs> us that um, that was like a part of their reasoning for why they shouldn't have to post all of their prices we we're like well we simply have 210 million of them. There's just
2: too many of them. Yeah exactly um, <laughs> People might realize how many, how much choice we have in all the prices, Co- <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> prices, prices, prices come on down
0: <laughs> Exactly, exactly um, but you know I will say I think it's important to note that like obviously I love what I'm able to do with SickNote. And I think, you know, I wish there were like a thousand other SickNote style newsletters doing what I'm doing in the, there's a lot to complain about in the American media landscape, but stories like that, like the Wisconsin hospital thing, you know, that is really important journalism. And it, it really does matter to expose these individual cases of like insanity where, you know, you have a hospital realizing like, oh my God, we have been overcharging by $40,000 um, for this knee surgery or whatever. Um, So, you know, that is one thing that like I've gone back to over and over again. But there are countless examples, you know, of, of hospitals, um, you know, arbitrarily making up basically these, these prices for things. It's, you know, it's, it's systemic.
1: Oh, for sure. And I think one thing that's always frustrating to me is that, that often in a lot of the um, discussion of these sort of outliers of, of like, exceptionally cruel uh, charging, you still have this uh, archetype of the smart consumer, which is sort of kept in mind. Mm -hmm. Like, it's still this underlying thing that like, if the patient or if the public had only known in advance, because so often when these things are called out and, and talked about in the media, you have the hospital being like, whoa, 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 whoa just kidding. We're mm-hmm. not going to we're not going to sue these patients. We promise or we're mm-hmm. going to give up on this. But, you know, it, it still has this sort of idea that if if we had only known in advance that they were going to be charging the quote unquote healthcare consumer this ridiculous price we would have ended up with a different result. And that ultimately, unfortunately, is, not, is a false conception of what's actually going on. And I think what SickNote does is it sort of shows how, especially with your, your piece, which was a, t- a two-parter, just with people's input on signing up for an ACA plan, how universal the confusion is and really how fake the idea that there are any choices at all involved in healthcare really is as an idea yes absolutely and you know i think one thing i really try to do is
0: you know it's it's important it's just as important to me the stories where someone could have made a better choice but for whatever reason didn't as as the stories where you have kind of the perfect victim of the of the healthcare system or whatever if someone Mm. was like just too overwhelmed by the stupid fucking exchange website um, and like couldn't pick their plan, you know, couldn't figure out which one was whatever. Do you remember in like around open enrollment time, the New York Times did this story that was like, um, oh well, you know, actually, people are really bad at picking their plans, and like economists <laughs> say uh, that, <laughs> that they that people are really stupid at picking their plans, and and it's just like, yeah, because all the all the choices suck. Like, how the hell are you supposed to know which one? It's literally, you know, one thing I said in my story about the ACA premiums was like, you know, I was picking an ACA plan for the first time, and you know, trying to figure out how much healthcare. I'm going to use, you know, I can't do that because I'm not a fucking wizard. Like, yeah, of course I don't know how many times I'm going to go to the hospital or, you know, how many migraines I'm going to get or how, you know, how, whether I'm going to be taking the same drugs in November that I am in January or whatever. Um, so I definitely try to, um, to like tease out those situations where yes, maybe someone, if they had been perfect, would have done hours of research and, you know, like gone to a different hospital or like, you know, connected with advocates who could have helped them, you know, sign up for Medicaid or, or whatever. But like to, you know, to kind of emphasize like how much is stacked against people making those perfect decisions or whatever. And I do actually think that, the the surprise billing thing is an interesting example of this because like there was a lot of focus in the last couple years on surprise billing especially you know obviously in congress and also in the media and i think it it totally makes sense obviously like the the existence of surprise billing is is really awful but it does kind of rely on this fiction that (laughs) i mean it's it's difficult because You know, the idea with surprise billing is like, oh, you know, people did the right thing and they went to a hospital hospital that's in network and then, you know, through no fault of their own, got charged X amount by a physician who was out of network or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's like the implication is almost that like, if they hadn't done that, then it would have been their fault and they sort of deserve to pay the bill <laughs> or whatever, yeah. or, right, you know, right. it, situations where someone is uninsured, for example, like, and goes to the hospital, like surprise billing has nothing to do with that because, you know, they, they didn't go to an out-of-network or every hospital is out-of-network if you're uninsured.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so with with surprise billing, there's, there's sort of this like implication that, like you say, you could be the quote unquote perfect consumer, but the system doesn't allow you to, uh, to, to be that way. And it's like, no, there's the, sh- we shouldn't be healthcare consumers at all. No. Like you shouldn't be having <laughs> yeah. to, to do these things at all.
2: Yeah. That's the sort of the argument of the, uh, healthcare consumer kind of like model is that even if people aren't uh, perfect consumers now, we could have a series of like fundamentally like information based reforms mm-hmm. like nutritional facts, effectively, <laughs> or like right. better shopping, you know, for America uh, <laughs> and, and that they could become uh, perfect consumers. But I think a lot of what you show is that it's not at all uh, about information or like the ability to compare and like pick and choose. These people don't really have choices at all. Because of the, the the fundamental like pricing of uh, uh I mean of services sort of on the uh, producer end, but also of of insurance plans to begin with. I was thinking about this interview you did with a person who owned a small business. Is just like reading this interview is like no, there's no real choices here. this choice is only in the sense of like a Hobson's choice. There's not like <laughs> a real choice.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think I think that is really important too to emphasize um uh, you know it, it is very frustrating because like so much of the coverage does focus on that um and like i you know i again I, I think it's really important to cover examples of things like surprise bills and and stuff like that you know those are all things that that should be covered but it, it's sort of harder to cover the situations that are kind of more of a gray area um and, you know, like, I understand why reporters kind of gravitate towards, you know, things like NPR's Bill of the Month, for example, I think is a really mm-hmm. good, um, you know, it's a really good thing to do or whatever. It's, it's great. But, like, you do have the sense that, you know, as a journalist, you're kind of focusing on these sort of unimpeachable cases where someone did everything right, quote unquote. Um and that that is that is frustrating. So, you know, I, I'll say like, you know, if you're thinking like, oh, should I reach out to Libby with my story of of, of my of my health care thing? But like, oh, you know, I I feel like maybe I did something wrong or whatever. Like, no, I want to I want to talk to the people who feel like they did something wrong. Absolutely. Like, you don't have to have been the perfect consumer to talk to me.
1: <laughs> no, and, and you're totally right that that this idea and the focus of these sort of most extreme cases sets up this binary that is sort of this charity model of like the deserving consumer who is a victim versus the consumer who simply needs some sort of re-education program to bring them up to smart consumer level. Because the idea that if you make a mistake when you're trying to plan for your healthcare, which as you're saying is like practically impossible, um, you, know, you have to be making that Mistake in good faith, I guess. it's part of this whole like larger, um, you know, individual responsibility dogma that we really ascribe to in the United States. but it it ultimately hides the fact that materially speaking, most people, even like healthy people on insurance, not people like me who who are heavy utilizers, super utilizers, <laughs> um are having to make some really austere decisions about their own care. I mean, it's um, just so many people are are signing up for these plans where they're like, well, I want it in case I get hit by a car. (laughs) And I know that if I go to the primary care doctor, it's not going to cost me an arm and a leg, but I have to not ask them about any of the things that are bothering me because that'll like result in the extra charges. And I just can't take that risk. I don't have the financial uh, flexibility to even look into things that might be healthcare issues yeah
0: no totally i completely agree and like one thing i really want to do with Sick Note is, is try and you know demonstrate and uh describe the sort of administrative hurdles that people face that you know i mean we talked about it with the aca like i don't bl- i don't blame anyone for looking at all these plans and being like all right well these all suck shit and like i'm gonna <laughs> help me so fuck it i'm not gonna sign up or whatever and like You know, there's this sort of like around open enrollment time, you always get these wonks tweeting things like, well, actually, if you earn under X amount of money, like you might find that there's a plan that, you know, covers you for a low amount of money or whatever. And it's like, (laughs) again, I just don't blame people for not going through you know, all the steps to find this stuff out, especially if they've done something like that before and found that the government lets them down, you know, and found that the choices let them down. Um, and, you know, things like Medicaid, like signing up for Medicaid and stuff. Like, I really want to do more with, with sicknote to kind of demonstrate, like, the, the barriers and burdens that are in the way of getting things that people should be qualified for. Like, you know, I just talked to a woman yesterday of, who... Uh, had this huge, ridiculous bill for her, her son, who was born premature. And, you know, she was she was a classic case of, like, being in the insurance gap. Um, and, you know, she was eligible for Medicaid and tried signing up, but, like, the person who had been helping her with it, the advocate that was paid for by the state, just kind of stopped answering her emails, because, you know, she thinks, because it's in the middle of the pandemic or whatever. And so, you know, she submitted the application herself, and then didn't hear anything and then when medicaid did kind of put it through they got it wrong and like it was covering like her other kid and not the kid who was born premature it's like all these weird little mistakes and stuff and so it's like there's this sort of assumption especially among kind of wonky policy types that like if a policy exists it works perfectly and covers everybody and there's no kind of barrier to getting it um but actually there are you know like this program you know medicaid is like you know 60 years old or whatever and it still sucks (laughs) you know like there are still all these situations where people who should be getting it can't get it and Mm -hmm. that is just as important to me you know like it's very important to me to kind of create a picture of why people might not get care that they are qualified for you know that they are eligible for even with the extremely draconian and mean you know eligibility rules in place like i really want to create a picture of like why that might be just too much of a burden
3: i think that's so important because uh also i mean if you think about let, let's take the the surprise billing thing for example i think when that gets covered in sort of a vacuum Right. Um, or even not, even not even covered. But when we think about that as a vacuum, I feel like it puts this kind of totem there. Like, oh, well, if only surprise billing were solved, everything would be fine. If only Trump yeah. wasn't attacking the ACA. If, if only, only Seema we closed- Verma weren't CMS administrator. In our <laughs> we need case. to close uh, private prisons. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. that kind of thing. Um, but then, you know, I think, for example, when you when you just when you look at what's actually you know, meaningfully happening. It's not even, uh, you you know, we could, we could talk about the, the prospective choices of like, Oh, which, which or whether ACA plan, uh, you take. And sort of the worst version of that is when those same pundits you're talking about smugly say, well, I really like spending four hours out of a Sunday afternoon, like picking my healthcare plan and looking at all the charts, et cetera. Like, fuck you guy. But the, but like, um, there's no treatment for that. Yeah. But like you're, you're. (laughs) Like, uh, one, one of my favorite, uh, and I, I know Sigma's still like very, very early on, but one of my like favorite, um, th- things from it, uh, currently is this piece where you talk to a, a social worker who, uh, works hospice and, you know, it, it just lays bare this stuff that I think that we, we try to talk about, um, all the time, but is actually, I feel like it just gets buried under all of this, like, Oh, surprise billing. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, ACA attacks, et cetera, which is just the simple stuff of, of like, What happens day in and day out when people, you know, whether it's like someone's just gotten older, they find out they have an illness or uh, there's there's like an accident and someone needs long term care. Um, Maybe they find out like, oh, wow, I have to do, uh, you know, a a Medicaid spend down. um, And this means I basically have to like forfeit all my assets. We could actually I think it would be good to get into some of what can actually, you know, happen there because it's quite um, uh, difficult. dire but when that moment where i guess i guess what i'm saying is leveraging things as like oh well you know if we had gotten rid of surprise billing for example things would be okay actually reinforces the idea that other than this thing uh things are okay so when people arrive at that point and they're like what do you mean medicare doesn't cover long-term care let medicare doesn't cover a nurse to come to take care of my uh you know family member or me or whatever you know um yeah like these these things happen all the time and it just gets it's like uh no one no one uh pays attention to it
0: yeah Mm -hmm. no absolutely and like that stuff that as you say kind of happens quietly um is the is the stuff that I really want to focus on again because because I run my own thing and because I'm not sort of you know, I don't have to be subject to a lot of the kind of assumptions that underpin a lot of reporting, which again, like, you know, this isn't necessarily to fault other healthcare journalists at all, but like, there is this incentive to only write about stuff if it's either a new angle or it's something that is again, like someone who did everything right or, or where it's like a new policy or something like that. And like, I I don't, I don't have to ab- abide by that. You know, I can, if mm-hmm. if I can interview someone who's, whose mom just went into, uh, you know, a nursing home uh, because they couldn't afford to pay for a, a home healthcare aid and they didn't, you know, like, that, or Medicaid wasn't paying for enough hours or something, like, that is just as much a story to me as a surprise bill or some unintended consequence of, uh, you know, of the ACA or, you know, some kind of like scandal or, you know, there there are all these incentives to only cover stuff that is like, new or sexy or whatever and like, like no I really want to cover the mundane stuff that happens to people every day like you know I said in that piece with the, the interview with the social worker like these are conversations that people are having every single day like right now as you're reading this someone is like you know breathing a, a sigh of despair because they yeah. don't have the help that they need to care for their ailing parent or something like that you know um, and you know I think not, not to keep harping on surprise billing like obviously we should end surprise <laughs> billing as a practice but something I wrote for a, a TNR piece um, in, back in 2019 about surprise billing is like, it totally doesn't surprise me that Democrats would focus on that and, you know, that there would be momentum to fix it because it, it's, it's this classic thing of like focusing on the, these like perfect victims who they can't imagine anyone would object to. Uh, helping it re- kind of reminded me of the of the dream act the dreamers you know like
2: yeah back
0: mm-hmm. in in the obama years there was this idea is like okay well they're here through no fault of their own and it was always <laughs> emphasized and they like right. picked these kids who are like you know honor students and like you know incredible like human beings or whatever to talk about it's like oh you really want to kick these people out kind of thing and it's like we're going to show how bad the republicans are by picking these these kids who you know no one could object to or whatever and it's like, okay yeah, you can get these like, (laughs) these like perfect cases through or whatever you can, you can, you, but by doing that, you kind of emphasize or kind of accept the premise that like, okay, well, if you're good, then, then we'll help you. And if you're bad, then sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, And surprise billing almost does the same thing to me. Like when you focus on that, it's like saying if you're uninsured and you went to the hospital or, you know, maybe you like, (laughs) these imaginary cases where someone looks up, finds out a hospital is out of network and is like, I'm going to go to it anyway. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. Try to, try to well, trick my insurance company into paying for this out of network care or whatever. It's like, I don't give a shit if you do that, like you should still have your fucking heart attack paid for. Like you should, you should not have to, no one should have a medical bill is, is a very important yes. concept to yes. me, whether it's a surprise right. or not, you know?
2: But I, I feel like the surprise billing thing is like really emblematic of something that, I don't, know, I don't know if you intended this to come out of your reporting, but it's something that emerged to me, um, uh, maybe because I just wanted to see it. Uh, but, like, the surprise billing thing is, like, okay, you have this piece of the reform that, like, is just one mole in the whack-a-mole, like, board. And when you push it down, like, other things pop up. But it is, like, this, like, perfect um, uh, case in which is, like – oh. Professionals who want to make their reputation on something and seem, you know, good at uh, addressing these sort of grotesque problems—they like find this thing they can peel off. It's actually, you know, uh, really politically uh, feasible because you're not challenging a lot of the way that the system works, mm-hmm. and you can like make your bona fides like on this little thing. And they're like, it seems like the entire healthcare system, if you want to call it that, seems to be like populated by people, some of whom you know, are, I, I think much more cynical, like people at the sort of level of like making political decisions. But then there are other people in the system who are forced to do what seems like an almost impossible task of trying to make this completely decrepit, uh, and heartless, cruel thing work. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's interesting because it, it's, I feel like I'm always looking for an explanation of why this system, which is so grotesque, uh, endures. That's not just like the, um, okay, well it's powerful interests. Yes. That's, that's a big part of it. Yeah. There's like a hegemonic part of it, but then there are also people within the system who are forced to like actually try to make it work and they know what they're doing. Uh, and they recognize their role in, you know, they're, they're doing the best they can. They're actually probably quite virtuous, uh, people. I was thinking about this social worker is like, seems like such a, you know, she understands everything that's sort of wrong about the system. She is trying to help people navigate and like do the absolute best that she can. But at the end of the day, she understands how just repulsive uh, the whole thing is. And I, I keep wondering, it's like, I wonder if part of the answer to like why this thing endures is there are also people within the system that are somehow charged with making it with, like, almost, like, putting their fingers in the various, like, cracks in the uh, in the hole. And it's, you know, it, it, it somehow creates more give than there should be. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I think one of the things that stood out to me most with that interview with her was that she often advises people who are dying not to bother signing up for Medicaid. Because if they're only going to be alive for a few weeks anyway, she said <laughs> the quotes that she had was like, yeah, it's just a few weeks. Just hang. Like, just hang out. Yeah. You know, like... If you're going to die in a few weeks, like don't, don't like go through all the stress and nightmare of like trying to sign up for Medicaid and like providing all of this evidence of your income and, you know, like turning out your pockets and being like, see, there's nothing here um, just to spend, you know, I don't know, a week or whatever, getting a, getting a nursing aid to come or going into a nursing home or whatever. Like that to me is so... Like illustrative of the problem, if if you oh, have yeah. social workers being like literally no, don't don't do this, and then I think that you raise a good point. The other thing that I've I've been thinking about, like, again, inspired by that interview with Elizabeth, is like um, one thing she brought up is that the, some people are reluctant to sign up for Medicaid because of Medicaid estate recovery, which is where mm-hmm. the state will uh, quote unquote recover your assets after you die to pay for the cost of caring for you while you were dying. Um, and uh, some people don't want to sign up for Medicaid because they don't want that to happen. Basically they don't, you know, they, they might lose their house. You know that your house doesn't count towards uh, up to a certain point. It doesn't count towards your assets when Medicaid is looking at whether or not you deserve (laughs) to live. Um, and, uh, it might be the only thing they have to pass on to the children. And so people don't want to sign up for it. Cause they're like, well, I don't want to lose my, you know, I don't want my kids to, to lose the value of my house or whatever.
3: Yeah.
2: Um,
0: and like I've been thinking about that and I've, you know, I, I am hoping to to write a lot more about it cause I think it's, it's very undercovered um, as an aspect of Medicaid, but also like a lot of the states that are the most aggressive at Medicaid estate recovery are blue states. And, I've been thinking about like the people who work for the government, whose job it is to, to do, to do Medicaid estate recovery and wondering like, do they have any idea of how evil (laughs) what they're doing is, (laughs) you know? Um, and you know, you have like state administrators for these plans that will, that will defend the practice of Medicaid estate recovery being like, well, we need to recover the you know the cost of caring for these people um because medicaid you know because without it i guess you know medicaid wouldn't be able to function like we need the funds or whatever and it's a very small percent of what medicaid's you know like of medicaid revenues overall like it's like one percent or something but you have these like I don't, I just, I I would, I would love to talk to someone basically whose job it is to enact Medicaid estate estate recovery from the, you know, as a government administrator or whatever, and see, like, do you think this is a good thing? (laughs) Like, it's, it's baffling to me. I mean, there's, you know, there's hundreds, thousands of people in America who do these jobs that like, you know, are cogs in the machine of this bad system. And actually, I don't know whether it'll come out by the time this episode goes up, but I do, I have done an interview with a a person whose job was uh manning the phones at um at uh, a a health insurer um at, and you know talking to people who's uh, you know like a customer service uh representative mm-hmm. for people whose prescriptions you know cost too much or, or whatever and and she said it was it was really hard emotionally on her and she did eventually quit because it was just it was just too hard to like constantly tell people like no we're not covering your medication or whatever and so obviously there are people out there whose whose consciences weigh on them or whatever and there are a lot of incentives on the other hand to keep doing that job because you need to pay your rent or whatever so you need your health insurance yeah (laughs) well exactly exactly um but you know it does it does make you wonder about especially especially with something like medicaid estate recovery where i just i truly don't know how what kind of ideology you would have to have to think that that is good
3: well, and I think to make matters worse, too, I mean, to be to be really explicit uh, about it, if you're, you know, if you're listening to this and you don't know a lot about Medicaid, for example, like, uh, you know, like Libby, as you mentioned, like, you know, uh, up to a certain point, um, for instance, you could you could maybe own a house and it might not count towards your uh, towards like your, your assets for qualifying for Medicaid. But for the most part, like um, most like most other assets uh, that you can have are, are counted uh for medicated purposes there are very few things that like are are not counted and so um you know for the most part most people who are on medicaid are already extremely destitute or like the idea of a medicaid spend down if you're not familiar with it uh if you're a listener not familiar with it is like literally i mean it is uh really ho- like horrifying thing but it's like it's basically the idea that you know for instance because as we have mentioned like medicare doesn't uh, cover long-term care um, also like um, like long-term care through the market is like extremely expensive like like paying for it uh, out of pocket or doing some co- sort of like long-term care insurance is extremely expensive and covers very little so people often end up having to uh, like spend down their assets to go to, to just to qualify for medicaid and that by that point by the time that they're you know getting to the point where they could qualify for medicaid and then like they've Uh, either spent down, like, sold or whatever, like... almost everything that they have they're like in, in a lot of in, in a lot of the states, states they're extremely destitute it's right? like a two thousand
1: like, dollar total asset cap and they right, even consider right. if you're sleeping on your kid's couch or something and you've moved in with your your child and sold your house like right. the accommodation could be considered a an asset as so, well
3: so this this process this uh this uh medicaid risk re- estate recovery is basically like bleeding a stone right um <laughs> and on top of it It is all happening. I think it's important to say, like in this context, where, you know, one of the reasons, for example, uh, that we might advocate for Medicare for all, and one thing that we talk about a lot um, in terms of like uh, that we've talked about recently during the pandemic, for example, is all these states, uh, including, as you mentioned, Libby, all these blue states. like a good example is uh, everyone's favorite uh, coronavirus hero, Andrew Cuomo, like, uh, you know, c- pledging cuts <laughs> to Medicaid during uh, in the middle of the pandemic. You know, one of the things that we've been saying this whole time is like, look, if you just if we fucking pass Medicare for all, if we had a single payer, not only would we not have a hospital where they're they're saying like oh there are a million different codes so i don't think we should make that public because no one will get it anyway or or we'll give up the game or something not only we not we not we not have that we would have like one formulary for all of those uh places we would also like not make it so that states have to pay for for medicaid programs right mm-hmm. like we wouldn't like all of this all of that like ex- Extenuating all the extenuating circumstances of sort of like the extra kicker immiseration that people get with things like uh Medicaid estate recovery right the like like bonus torture or whatever the state does become completely irrelevant because if the whole idea i mean and they should be anyway because i don't understand why states which either why states can't deficit spend or why uh or why basically uh you know states or why, Like the federal government can't just pick up the tab first entire the entirety of state Medicaid programs. But like the entire the entire principle of like, oh, well, this money has to come from somewhere is just like all that's doing is just like driving a stake into the poor. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: I mean, and, and, and for as is pointed out in this interview uh, that we've been talking about that you did like. For people who are dying, for people who find out suddenly that they're dying, who are entering into hospice, like a Medicaid spend down is not even an option for like the most extreme cases that you would think like just out of sheer compassion. We would take care of people when they're they're like, oh, you've just been diagnosed with stage four cancer because maybe you worked for 30 years in a chemical plant and now you're like super sick, Uh, a Medicaid spend down takes on average three to four years to engineer because Medicaid doesn't just look at your immediate financial resources. Like People have to you know, be diagnosed. And that in and of itself to get diagnosed is a burden because a lot of people don't have access to regular primary care, don't have access to specialists. So you have to get diagnosed. You have to know that you need long term care, know that you can't afford it, and then make a decision to work towards long term being able to qualify for long term care under Medicaid, which takes, again, on average between three and four years to spend down assets and then live and demonstrate your need to the state. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no,
0: that's one of the things that Elizabeth said is that she doesn't see situations where people do, you know, Medicaid divorce or whatever, very often because she's a hospice worker and so she's talking to people who are already dying. And like you say, that stuff—they look back five years. The Medicaid look back is five years, so by the time she's talking to them, that's not really that's not really an option. Um, which is just again, I think that's such a good point about about Medicare for all. It's just I would love to. Get rid of all like this. Think about just how many people are spending their lives like engineering these. I mean, even people who are you know very heroic and are advocates for um, for the poor and the you know the elderly who you know, should be getting this kind of care. Like I would love to be able to reassign these people to something else that isn't created by our insane decision to have a separate program for the poor, you know, a separate program to administer health insurance for the poor. Like they could be doing something else. They could be artists. Like I talked to a guy after I, uh, after I spoke to Elizabeth, he got in touch and, you know, said how meaningful that interview was to him. Cause he is also, um, an advocate for, um, for older adults in Pennsylvania. And I I talked to him about his job and his job is helping people again, sign up for Medicaid and and get the benefits they're entitled to. And he says that he has seen people die waiting to get Medicaid. Um, and yeah, you know, I just, (laughs) some of the stuff he told me that people have to do to, to get Medicaid is ridiculous. Like he said, he was helping someone who needed to get Statements from his uh, from his bank um, to demonstrate basically that he didn't have um, you know he didn't have too much money or whatever and he needed you know years worth of statements to do that and his credit union wanted to charge him like a, you know a number of dollars or whatever it was like something like over a hundred dollars just to print out the statements going back <laughs> a number of years. Um, and he didn't have internet access to to kind of print out that stuff at home. And so he had, to, he had to go to the credit union or whatever. And so this guy whose job it is to advocate for these people was like going back and forth with, with the credit union. Like, no, just, just give this guy his fucking bank statements. Like, it's his account. <laughs> like, how are you charging him <laughs> right. for the paper or whatever? And that guy did die before he got his Medicaid. Um, and it's just... Yeah i mean you know god bless that guy for doing that job um you know for a non-profit or whatever and it's just like these are situations that we've created that we don't have to do we don't have to have situations like that like yeah we, mm-hmm. we just don't have to do it this way you know all of these people who there are all these people who are employed doing insane things like medicaid estate recovery you know i would love to reassign them to doing actually useful jobs um like picking up trash or whatever that would be fine with me but um <laughs> you know at the same time we have people who are doing very heroic things um and you know being advocates for people for systems that do not need to exist at all and for situations that we've created that we do not need to have at all and so it's just a a big waste of time basically and you know i definitely also you know going back to a point we made earlier like i do want to focus as much as possible with Signote on you know, obviously the the things like bills and high drug costs and high insurance premiums and stuff, that stuff is really important, but I don't want to focus just on money. I want to focus on time as well that people are having to waste. Um, and you know, hours that people spend on the phone? Um, you know, I talked to a guy with a, you know, a a chronic, uh, chronic illness from a birth defect. And he was talking about how, you know, just the hours and hours you have to spend on the phone dealing with Mm -hmm. insurance and stuff like that. Like that stuff is, Again, maybe not as, like, sexy or easy to, um, you know, to to demonstrate in an article, but, you know, I'm going to do my best to try and kind of illustrate what that does to a person's life, basically.
2: I I always find it interesting that when uh, the federal government, like, makes new regulations, one of the things that they have to do... Is estimate the amount of time businesses will have to spend complying <laughs> uh, with those regulations. They actually have to do like this yep. back of the envelope calculation. They never have to do it for, uh, you know, actual human beings yes. uh, living with the consequences of these policies. So, it, you know, yeah, and I and I think that, um, you know, the reporting, I think, suffers from it, two problems that are not specific to the reporting. One is just. The yeah, just to focus on uh, money, but also the second thing would, yeah, just be the inability to like go beyond simply talking about one aspect of the I mean, it's really, really hard to focus on more than like one aspect at a time. Mm-hmm. And I think you're, you know, in, in a lot of these stories, you see how all of these different parts of the system like uh, weave together to like form the trap. Mm-hmm. Yes,
0: that's actually a really important point. And it's kind of why I decided to structure SickNote the way that I did. Like a lot of the time when people when I get in touch with people, especially at especially at nonprofits or um you know other other advocates, um when i <laughs> when I talk to them, they're like, you know, how many people are you looking to talk to, or like what what sort of what sort of story is this going to be? And I have to explain, like uh, a lot of you know, for for good reason, a lot of stories will interview multiple people per story and kind of like pepper their quotes throughout and kind of use them to illustrate a bigger problem. But I am sort of switching it up with Cigna and just every, every interview is going to be run just as a whole conversation with that one person. And that is partly because I want to demonstrate all the different things that can go on in a person's life, um, and talk to them about not just, you know, if someone contacts me, cause they're like, Oh, I had this really big hospital bill or, you know, my job makes me sick or, or whatever. I want to talk to them about all the different aspects at once. So I want to talk to them about the health insurance and I want to talk to them about their job and like what other, what other situations they have in their life. You know, I want to get, I want to demonstrate the whole experience that that individual is having instead of using individuals to kind of, demonstrate a bigger story, if that makes sense.
1: No, totally. And that's so important, too, because I feel like there's so much there is such extensive social reproductive work that goes into just the general reinforcement of the idea that illness and sickness are, you know, negative or bad states of being. These like are stigmatized Mm -hmm. um, identities and in sort of reducing People's experiences to just the most sensational aspects, you really lose the sort of general material impact of like this system on people's whole lives because it's not just the moment that you're engaging with the one bill or the moment that you're engaging with the one doctor or the one thing that's gone wrong. It's it's like, for example, in my own Social Security disability application, I had to prove to the judge that. Um, You know, a significant portion of my time was spent working in order to cover my medical costs because most people who apply for disability can only get approved if you've not been working for two years. So what I showed the judge is that uh, in the year prior, while I was doing my disability appeal, I was in treatment for 138 days and I spent 84 days on the phone with insurance. <laughs> and Christ. the judge said, "Wow, that's like that's like a full-time job. Like how do you even how do you even work?" You know, and I said, "Well, if I don't work, then I can't even have the privilege of spending 80 some odd days on the phone with insurance for multiple hours because I can't afford my premium." So yeah. And if I can't afford my premium, then I can't get my biologic and then I will go more blind. So, you know, the government has a choice. You wanna cover me now when I'm sort of blind and really sick or you wanna cover me on Medicaid when I'm like dying in two years because I couldn't keep this up, you know? And and it's ultimately like that is the only choice that we make in healthcare in the United States is the choice to make sure that every individual feels the full weight. of their care everyone has to be aware of just exactly um how difficult it is and how special the fact that you can get care is and i don't i don't think that any of these arguments about you know a one-size-fits-all plan is actually really bad because then we don't have choice and then we don't have our options and that takes away our freedom like To me, it's like, wow, if we all had the same plan, if there was one formulary, could you imagine the freedom that people would have because one person's experience of fighting for a medication would be universalized and that would save people time down the line because there would be these pathways for approval, for example? I mean, it's just it's it's mind boggling sometimes to think about how this consumer framing of health at the end of the day, is really the issue. It's not about transparency. Making Medicaid transparent, making um, private insurance transparent, making billing transparent, that's not going to fix anything. It's more that we have to completely undo this idea that healthcare is a product and we need to sever healthcare from work.
0: No, I completely agree, and that is a very important point with the the hospital price transparency rules as well. Um, it was like one of the one of the things that Trump kind of, I don't want to say accomplished because it's not, <laughs> it's, it's barely anything. Like, you know, they passed this rule to make um, hospitals post their uh, their price lists, and you know, I think they're funny to read. Um, you know, I, I've used them a few times for stories. Um, you know, to compare the costs of, of various procedures, if you can even understand them, because obviously, you know, they are mostly gibberish, like to a person who is not trained to read hospital billing codes, um, you know, the, but, you know, they can be useful from a journalistic perspective, but they obviously are completely useless from a consumer, because yeah, even if it was like very clearly laid out, like, you know, in a in a spreadsheet, like, OK, this is how much a heart attack costs at this hospital you're not going to be looking at that in the back of the uber on the way to the hospital because you are taking an uber because an an ambulance would cost too much um you know you're not going to be comparing them like wait a sec i'll tell you which hospital i want to go to once i figured out which one is going to cost less like no that's not how medical that's not how anyone should be making their medical decisions um but also like i even if you (laughs) even if you like Take a step back and you say like, okay, well, even if they're not going to help consumers, maybe they can help insurance plans. You know, <laughs> like pick between, you know, like uh, hospitals and like decide which ones to cover and like ha- help them negotiate uh, plans or whatever. It's like, no, are, are you fucking stupid? Like, come on. <laughs> like, yeah, I think the, there are obviously like bigger things going on when insurance pays like three to five times as much for a procedure as Medicare does. Like, it's not just because insurance is like very stupid um, and can't figure out how much these things could cost is because they don't they don't care they don't care to push prices down that much because the more they get the, like the more that they are getting in revenue the more they can charge in premiums like it's actually pretty simple like you know the incentives for insurance to reduce the um <laughs> reduce the cost of american healthcare is like very low right. <laughs> it's yeah. very very low um so yeah i mean it's it, the the whole like treating patients as consumers thing is it, it's again very alien to me coming from a country with the nhs um and uh, you know that's not to say the nhs is perfect in any to any extent but um it is it is very alien i will say
3: well and i think uh you know we as I mean, we were just talking a moment ago about how uh, all all these things like think just thinking about the the incredible scale of uh how all these things gum up people's like productive energies uh right and how much how much time uh how much like aggregate i don't know like life years or life hours or or whatever is spent um (laughs) dealing with the absurdities of this system that they call you know the efficiencies of the market or whatever but there, there's the energy that you know we've we've talked a lot about for example um framing these things like the co- the consumer uh framing in uh in media coverage and kind of how people think about it uh in general but I think you know one thing that we haven't touched on a lot is i just i keep thinking about um the sort of the productive energies that also get gummed up in uh i'm thinking for example of specifically the like quote unquote progressives who uh who have quote unquote real more realistic reform goals <laughs> mm-hmm. if you know what i mean um who do focus on things like hospital tra- like price trans pricing transparency for uh for insurance companies and drug uh, pricing right surprise medic uh, medical uh billing um and you know if you're like it, it occurs to me that you know all of all of that energy spent in uh you know thinking thinking about trying to get these reasonable reforms like fighting for these quote-unquote reasonable reforms uh these much much smaller tweaks to the overall uh you know really really uh horrifying healthcare system it, it's another one of these things where that focus gets drawn away even from what the, what some of the 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 big things are where uh, people just feel the floor come out from under them um I don't know, like, I, I'm aware, for example, that prior to the prior to and I think even after the like the Jaya Paul and Sanders Medicare for all bills, there was a lot of uh, argument between progressives over whether or not long term care should be included in a Medicare for all proposal, which obviously like it must like it absolutely must be. Mm-hmm. But if we're like, fo- if there's so much, if there's so much energy focus on, oh, like, well, maybe this one little thing will like get us slowly on the road towards like a more just health system and not just saying don't you see how all of these things are related you know these aren't like little individual issues these are as you as you're saying you can go through you can talk to one of these individuals and you can you can hit all of these different aspects of healthcare right like you can or not just healthcare but you can hit how all of these different aspects of uh health affect the like a touch on the political economy and how um how like bound up all, all these things are. And in a lot of cases, not in every case, because, you know, we we're, we're never said that like Medicare for all is going to solve everything. But like in many of the cases, the things that people are really complaining about and the people that the things that people are complaining about who are saying like, oh, this is a, you know, this is an attainable progressive goal, quote, mm-hmm. unquote, or whatever, are things that are fundamentally solved through a single payer system.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I, I think it, it's, it's difficult because the, there's this kind of, Smugness that comes with choosing the the quote unquote more pragmatic approach or whatever. It's like, oh, well, you know, don't you realize that actually, you know, Joe Biden's plan to lower the percent of your income that your ACA plan could cost from 9.5% <laughs> to 8% is actually going to help a lot of people or whatever. And it's like, okay, sure. I mean, you know, it maybe it'll help some people, but the fact The fact is that the the healthcare problem here, it's it's, it's a many headed hydra you know, and you can keep cutting the heads off. you can keep cutting off the heads of like you know surprise billing or you know like you say like drug costs or you know tweaking with the a c a you know subsidies or whatever and it's like sure that you know then you 've got you've got fewer heads, but you 've still got a fucking hydra you know like you, <laughs> you still you 've still got this major problem yeah. and I, you know i don 't necessarily begrudge people who decide that they want to focus on you know, they want to dedicate their lives to getting rid of, you know, minor, more minor aspects of this terrible system. Cause you know, if you can look back and say like, all right, well, I got rid of Medicaid state recovery or whatever, then yeah, you should absolutely pat yourself on the back and that's, and that's great. But to take something like that and then use it as a reason to oppose Medicare for all, uh, or, or yeah. to spend your energies like, like dissing or like opposing people who do that, you know, if if you want to, if you want to focus on something like Medicaid state recovery, but then your opinion is, and people who focus on Medicare for all are bad or stupid or whatever, then I just don't have any time for that. Like, you know, if, if you want to focus on a minor aspect and get, and get rid of that, that's fine. But like, it cannot, you know, dissuade you from, you know, like I think, for example, if, you know, if Joe Biden's turn around tomorrow and, and managed to get a public option passed or whatever, like, yeah, obviously that would be better than it is right now. But that doesn't mean that you, that you like, that you can you know if you want to say if you want to dedicate your energies to getting that passed, that you then say people who want to dedicate their energies to getting medicare for all past is somehow like wrong or idealistic
1: or they just want a pony or or whatever any of that <laughs> stuff you know that's <laughs> really frustrating no that's such a good point because one thing that when we get that kind of push back which we do often on the show that we are unrealistic that we're like asking for too or much yeah. that uh, of course, you want free health care because you're, you know, sick and you need it. So your your advocacy <laughs> <Yep>. is self-interested. <laughs> is that, yes. <laughs> is that a real thing people say? Um,
3: oh, yeah. Two, oh, yeah. Those are the uh, best. Those, yeah. are, uh, those are real. Really something special okay, when, no. when B gets those. Yeah.
1: I always say like, yeah, you know, a public option would be great. It would be better. It would save lives. But a public option is not a tool um that can be used by patients to uh change the economy of health in the mm-hmm. United States. Mm-hmm. Medicare for all if it includes long-term care is a tool.
3: Well and and here's the other problem though. I mean a public option, yeah, it yes would ha- you know help some some people, right? Sure. Yeah. It, do- it obviously doesn't help uh everyone but what it does do um and much like i think about this in the same way as like the all the hubbub about like oh my god like biden might try and reduce the uh the medicare age to 60 right (laughs) like what it does is it allows much like i think the aca did um for the sort of like mainstream democratic party to unfurl the mission accomplished banner Mm -hmm. um and to take at least you know the segment of people for whom that helps, right, which I'm not discounting the fact that it would help some people, but the segment of people for whom that helps, at, at least for a short period, you, you just, like, um, mollify them, right? Right, um, right, And it kind of – I mean, that, that's, that's, like, a, that's a, that's a minor point. You know, I'm not – again, I, I agree I wouldn't disparage anyone who, who like, fights for these uh, minor tweaks unless they say that's where it should stop. But I will say <laughs> yeah. that, you know, there is a cost – to minor reforms and i think that that cost is the demobilization of totally some of the mm-hmm. people who should help you fight for the good thing
1: and you lose the advantage of of solidarity amongst a much larger population if everybody's on one plan that's a big bargaining group yes. you know
3: that's
0: exactly it and I, that is something a point i made in in my last uh time of recording newsletter um rounding up the health news i talked about the Trump administration issuing a last minute approval for um, Tennessee to switch to a Medicaid block grant. Um, and you know one thing I noticed uh, you know in Kaiser Health News had a, an article explaining what blo- block grants are and stuff and you know it says for example, a state could ask to cover just one drug class for most conditions and um, you know that that is really scary. Um, and you know one of the things about b- block grants, for example, is that they'll be able to do things like that and to renegotiate prices with drug makers and decline to cover drugs if if it deems the price is too high, according to the New York Times. And, you know, that is something where you think, well, hold on a sec, like, whoa, doesn't Medicare for all empower the government to negotiate drug prices? And don't we want the government to be able to negotiate drug prices, which means declining to cover drugs and stuff? And it's like, yeah, that is a mechanism that will happen under Medicare for all, like under Medicare for all, obviously there will be a formulary and the government will decide because some, you know, we should also say some drugs are fucking useless. Like some of the drugs that, you know, the (laughs) FDA doesn't say like, okay, is this drug more cost-effective than it's, it's comparison drug? Like, should we approve this drug where they just changed the casing on the outside of the drug and change the name and, you know, slapped a new label on it or whatever. Um, You know, that, that's a bad thing obviously. (laughs) Like we wouldn't want the government to, you know, to pay for a, a more expensive version of a of, of a drug that is exactly the same, but the the differences the differences between that Medicare for all version and the Medicaid version, where Tennessee can decide, like, all right, we're not going to pay for these, um, you know, the this this type of insulin, we're only going to pay for this type of insulin. You know, the reason that's bad is that it's a separate program for the poor, and the incentives are completely different when you have the government deciding what it's going to cover for the yeah. poor and the disabled versus everybody. You know, mm-hmm. when you when you're cutting <laughs> drug coverage for rich people and uh, you know everybody else, suburban moms and so on, like yeah, the the like the dynamics for the government are different. Like and that's uh, you know this is uh, the, the other side of that is like yeah, you have countries like Britain with the NHS where they make bad decisions about what to cover. Um, and you need an energized left to push back on that. You know, they, the NHS is always trying to, and successfully you're trying to, you know, make the local hospital in my hometown worse. Um, the government rather is trying to do that. It's been doing that my entire life has been trying to get rid of the, um, the obstetrics consultants so that if you give birth in, in Banbury, you've got to take a you know ambulance forty five minutes down the road to Oxford, um, which can be devastating, and people have died because of those decisions. Um, and you know that still happens under under single payer, but the difference is that the government is more is obviously more accountable to the populace than having you know hundreds of private insurance companies and plans,
1: mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm.
0: splitting that up across across the entire population and taking the population that is the least represented in government and is less likely to vote um, and putting them on a different plan like it's just it's it seems very obvious to me like (laughs) why the dynamics would be different there
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah
3: would you rather have ten thousand really engaged uh, activists pushing a sustained national campaign against a single entity or those same people having to fight i don't know 20,000 uh, individual companies uh from health insurers to hospital networks like at the same time you know I
1: mean this is why the the mindset of of reformism and it really is this mindset right it's a choice and a decision to think about these things in that term in those terms of of like limited imagination like it really is a counterinsurgent tactic because all that we do in the United States with healthcare is create like more complicated systems to divide constituencies, which demobilizes them and takes away any power that they might have to unify and fight for something that's more equitable. And it's it's resulting in I think worse and worse outcomes for people that, as you're saying, Libby, are are not represented in government and are not represented. In general. And um it's, I think, an incredibly powerful idea to just unify the payer. Right. And the simple tiny little one trick. Right. What is it? One simple trick. One weird <laughs> trick. One yeah. weird trick of um switching up the payer and unifying the billing codes like wow, imagine what a difference that would make for like long COVID patients who are getting denied supplemental oxygen when they're being discharged from the ICU because COVID is only coded as a acute diagnosis for, you know, 90% of the insurance companies in the United States. If you have one payer, you only need to change one code to accommodate this stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's a big deal. That's a huge tool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, I wrote a piece um, at TNR
0: not long after I started there about how having, you know, I, it was called the fetish, fetishization of employer-provided healthcare, and <laughs> I, you know, I think, you know, at the time we, it was still during the primaries, and there was this, you know, all of this, like just nonsense in the primary about how everyone loves their employer-provided plan or whatever. But it is true <laughs> that, you know, it is it is it, all the Medicare for all stuff hits different if you've always had everything if you've always had your employer paying for like 90 percent of your premium you don't realize how much how much healthcare actually costs you know if you if you pay like I don't know 90 bucks or 100 bucks a month for your um for your premium which a lot of people you know there are people who pay a ton for employer-provided health care but there are also a lot of people who don't pay a lot for their employer-provided health care you yeah. know and it's like they don't know the cost and they're healthy. They've never had to use their plan. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. My plan's fine. Because um, there are these sickos out there who, you know, even if they don't love their insurer, they're like, yeah, it's probably fine. I don't know. Because they've never they've never had a, you know, a chronic health issue or they've had to go to, the, you know, they've gone to their primary care physician a couple of times. They've had a $10 copay or whatever, and it's been fine. You know, the, the work that that does to remove solidarity between people who, you know, have... The, these good you know i i mean i had great insurance when i was at actually you know i had great insurance at tnr because it was a union plan and it was so cheap <laughs> it was like 25 bucks <laughs> a month or something insane like that and yeah. it covered everything those union plans are no joke um but uh <laughs> you know you have these people who have it pretty good um and those are people who <laughs> who vote you know and it just completely removes any kind of like chance of solidarity, or not chance of solidarity, but you know, it removes a lot of the incentives of solidarity between people who have it pretty good, who have never, you know, they might not know how bad it is, frankly, yeah. if you have ACA coverage or you, you know, and you have to pay a ton for that or if you have medicaid or anything like that um or even if you yeah. have high healthcare costs or whatever so you know the one weird trick of making the like suburban karens like pay for you know like you know understand like oh actually you know my <laughs> the outcomes of my life are indeed tied to everybody else uh, mm-hmm. would, be, would be great
1: Right. And that, you know, the cruelty and violence doesn't just occur in these spectacular moments, but it's more banal. It's more everyday. And if it is part of your life, it's a pretty big part of your life. You know, and I, I think that's what you're, you've you been doing so well on sick. And I'm so excited to see where this coverage goes and I I hope that your ACA plan does eventually cover your medications. (laughs) (laughs) I just uh, just put in the refill request this morning so we'll see. By the time this comes out I'll find out. Well if you need a hand on uh, pushing them until the last final appeal when they tell you they will not accept another appeal I am more than happy to help. I will absolutely hit
0: you up (laughs) for that because it is basically inevitable. I had a lot of fun um, (laughs) when I called my insurance plan asking them and to tell them what the name of the drug that i want to cover was and so i had to spell out dihydro or mesolate over the phone <laughs> which was just really hard uh, but you know bless the lady on the phone she did a she did a good job understanding my accent so
3: see all the see all the wonderful life skills that the private market engenders <laughs> how could we possibly do without it you know
0: it was it was great practice i've always been really bad at spelling out loud so um
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there you go. This is job skills training. You're you're improving your your literacy skills mm. through your engagement with the private health market. <laughs> it's, yep. It's exactly.
2: Mavis Beacon teaches suffering. <laughs> God.
1: Before we wrap, are there any final things that we want to uh, hit on before we go? Um, nothing other than subscribe to sick (laughs) note from my perspective. And also,
0: you know, if you, you know, if you can't afford to subscribe to another thing every month, which I, I totally understand, um, even when this, you know, at some point, some of my posts will go behind the paywall, but some of them will be free as well. And also if you have a story, um, you know, about anything we talked about or anything else, you know, anything that you think involves your health in any way, please get in touch. Um, you know, you can just email sicknote newsletter at gmail.com. And I'm always happy to let you be anonymous if you're worried about, um, you know, it being the first result on Google or whatever. Um,
1: that's totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Yeah. And I think everybody should at least become a free subscriber to Sickened so yeah, we encourage supporting Libby's work because as we say every time Libby's on she is one of the panel's favorite voices on healthcare also
3: we gotta we, we gotta get good voices up in the higher ranks of the sub stack uh tiers because otherwise <laughs> oh, it's geez. all Nazis and Madagascar so you know <laughs>
1: Yeah. Which is yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> I agree. <Yeah. laughs> um, thank you so much, Libby. People can find the newsletter at sicknote.co. We will link to that in the episode description as well as uh put the email so that you can share your healthcare story with Libby. And um definitely if you are hate listening to this and you do nothing else, please read the piece that we were talking about with the um person who is a um a social worker on hospi- with hospice patients because that, if anything else, people should read that one for sure.
0: Thank you. I, I agree. So, so far, that is absolutely my favorite sick note post, and I, I would love for everybody to read that.
1: Yeah, we just don't talk about death enough in in this country, and as a result, we ignore the incredible cruelty of it for most people. So, yeah, it's absolutely. very important work. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us for another special interview as part of medicare for all week this is our second annual medicare for all special and we appreciate you checking it out if you'd like to support the show patreon.com slash death panel pod medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week cool yay thank you so much libby thank
3: you oh thank you i was so much
0: fun i always love coming on it's always so much fun
3: This has been Medicare for All week from the death panel. Medicare for All week is an annual series presenting brand new interviews with activists, researchers, and others on building power toward Medicare for All, why we need it, and how to win it. Up next, in tomorrow's interview we speak with physician Adam Gaffney about how the coronavirus pandemic demonstrates the need not just for Medicare for All, but for greater public coordination of the American hospital system. To support our show and make event series like Medicare for All week possible, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod.